Please pray these words with me from King David in Psalm 19. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So, giving, uh, it's again a dicey and divisive topic to talk about in church, but the question I want to ask is why? Why is it such a, a dicey and divisive thing to talk about? It's something that we see displayed in each of our texts for today from the Bible, and we know it's something that our God has called us to do, so why is it so such a divisive topic, something that we don't want to talk about usually in church? I think that partially the reason for not wanting to talk about giving in church usually stems from the fact that usually it's taken out of context, out of its original context in God's word and used for, dare I say, ulterior motives. So, to be clear this morning, this is not a sermon about giving more money. You are not going to be prompted to or urged or even asked to prayerfully consider give, giving more money this morning. Rather, all that I would like to do for us is to walk through our text from 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and see three biblical principles that the Apostle Paul lays out for why a Christian would choose to give to the church. And uh, I think it's good for us to remember as we enter into this text that, that this is not some ideal, ethereal idea that that Paul has, but rather this is something that, that Paul has been led to a conclusion of by the Lord based on his, his context, based on the experiences that he has gone through in his ministry. And uh, to begin, uh, we, we begin with a context. And most New Testament scholars would agree that the Apostle Paul is probably writing this uh, letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, from the area of Macedonia. And so Macedonia is up to the left there, uh, you can see Thessalonica. I don't know, does this work? No, okay. So try and find Macedonia left uh, upper side, uh, Thessalonica, Berea, uh, Philippi, and he's writing to uh, the, the southern area down to Corinth, which is right above Achai. Um, and he, he begins by, by describing the generosity on the part of the Macedonians. We hear him say in our text, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So Paul and Timothy are, are presently experiencing pain and suffering along with the Christians in Macedonia. Uh, and yet, in the midst of their affliction, the, the pressures from within, their heart and their mind, but also the, the outside, the external pressures of the, the suffering that the, the world around them is placing on them, uh, in the midst of all of that, they have joy. Joy not as a, a feeling or an emotion, but something that's rooted in something else, in someone else, and their joy is rooted in the completed work of their Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and that leads them then to be generous to another group who is also ex experiencing some pain and affliction at this point, and those are the Christians in Jerusalem, the mother church, the, the church from which all other churches in, in Asia Minor come from, uh, is experiencing some difficulties. Uh, the, the Christians in Jerusalem are experiencing not only uh, afflictions from the religious leaders, the Jews, but also from the Roman authorities, and then also add on top of that, there's a severe famine in the land at this time. 
Um, and so we hear about this uh, in Acts chapter 11. Uh, a man named Agabus actually prophesies that there's going to be this famine in the land. And based on his words, the disciples who are in Jerusalem at that time say, we need to do something about it. And so they determined, we hear in Acts chapter 11... Uh, that everyone, according to his ability, uh, would send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So, uh, as Paul went out to all these different churches in his missionary journeys, not only would he bring the good news, the gospel of what Jesus Christ had accomplished for all of humanity, but he would also uh, be asking them if they would be willing to support those Christians living in Jerusalem who are going through a hard time. He was a fundraiser. He was going to spur on other Christian churches in order to raise funds uh, for the, the church in Jerusalem. And one of the churches that uh, he asks to do this is the church in Corinth. And the church in Corinth was a wealthy congregation. We hear that Paul asks them to set aside some funds every week when they come together in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, that he might take up the contribution that they have and then bring it back to Jerusalem on his way back through. And we hear that eventually he does bring these funds to Jerusalem. He doesn't just say, set aside this money, and then he takes it all for himself. No, he actually does bring it to Jerusalem. And he, we hear him talking about this when he's actually before uh, Felix on, on trial, the, the governor of the area. He says in Acts chapter 24, now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. But again, that's what's going to take place in the future. We have to go back to the the present context of where Paul is. He hasn't yet taken up this collection. He's, he's continuing to urge congregations and individuals uh, to give for this cause. Uh, but again, the, the, the joy that the Macedonian Christians have overflows in a wealth of generosity. We hear Paul say in verses three through five, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. And this is where we see the first biblical principle or reason why we as Christians would give. And that's to support the need of someone else or of a group or for a cause. And so what we see taking place here is the biblical principle of needs-based giving. And this is what we see taking place in our other two readings today as well. Matthew chapter 14, this, this crowd is following Jesus. They, they hear him teach, they see him do healings, and then it's time to have some food. They're getting a little hungry. And the disciples say, well, the easiest thing to do is to send them off. This is a desolate place. Send them off so that they can go get some food. And Jesus says, no, that's not gonna be what takes place. You provide them. They have a need and you're going to provide for it. They say, we don't have the means in order to be able to do that. We have five loaves of bread and two fish. And yet we see Jesus is able to provide for the needs of this group. They have an abundance. They are able to take up 12 baskets full in the end. We also see in our Old Testament reading, uh, this widow uh, whose husband had been in the presence of Elisha, one of the, the sons of the prophet, a group that traveled along with them. Uh, her husband's now dead, and she has to pay the creditor who's come. 
and she has absolutely nothing with which she can pay him. She has this great need. So she comes to Elisha and says, what can I do? And he says, well, what do you have? And she says, I have nothing except a little bit of oil. And so we hear Elisha command her to gather up empty jars of oil, and we see that God provides for her need, giving her an ample amount of oil, so much so that it keeps flowing even when they don't have jars, and she's able to pay this creditor that she has, but God provides for her need. Uh, But the incredible reality that we touched on just a little bit last week and that I want to talk about right now is that our God chooses to use us as his servants, his individuals, in order to be those who provide for the needs of those who are around us. Again, in our text for today, God could snap his fingers and take away the famine that's taking place in Jerusalem. He could use his angels in order to provide for the needs of those who are in Jerusalem, those Jerusalem Christians. He could also just simply miraculously work through the the church in Corinth, a wealthy congregation, in order to provide for all of the needs in abundance for the Christians in Jerusalem. And yet, that's not what we see taking place. Again, Paul begins our text by talking about the incredible generosity that the poor Macedonian Christians are showing. Uh, But Paul isn't one who just randomly includes things in his writings. He doesn't just include things for fluff to make them longer, but he puts them in there for specific reasons. And the reason that he's doing this right here, talking about how the poor Macedonians are overflowing in generosity, is that he wants to spur on this wealthy Corinth congregation in order to do what they have promised that they would do. We hear in verses 6 and 7, Paul say, accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. And this leads us to see the second biblical principle as why Christians would give. And that's because it's our duty. We hear Jesus say in Luke chapter 6, verse 35, as he's teaching his disciples, those who are going to follow after him, what they are to do in order to represent him in this world. He says, but love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. Jesus doesn't preface these words by saying, yes, give when it is easy for you, when it's convenient for you, when you want to. It's not what Jesus says. Rather, Jesus expects that this is something that we will be doing at all times throughout our walk of faith. And yet... We don't see that Jesus puts any amount of money that we are to give, nor does Paul. The only time that Jesus actually talks about tithing in the Gospels is when he's using it to reprimand the Pharisees for what they are doing. He says, you're, you're tithing in small ways with, with spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you're not doing that in weightier matters of the law, like justice, mercy, and faithfulness. He doesn't tie it to an amount, but this is a calling that he has given to us. But again, Paul is a very astute 
man, not only in knowledge, but also in his understanding of how people are going to react to the words that he puts down on this paper that will be sent to them. Again, Paul's looking to spur on the church in Corinth in order to do what is expected of them, what they have promised to do in the past in order to fulfill this obligation that they have made. Now, Paul could simply shame them and scold them into doing what they should do, but he also knows then that they wouldn't be giving for the right reasons. And so Paul lays out this example of the Macedonians, these, these poor Christians who are giving generously, again, in order to spur on the Corinthians. He doesn't lie to them. He doesn't butter the Corinthians up. But rather, he speaks the truth to them in love. Now, we have to remember that the Corinthians were ones that Paul wrote to in, in 1 Corinthians as saying that they had worse practices than the pagans living in Corinth. And that's something to say, because pagan was, or, uh, Corinth was a hub of hedonism in that day. So to say that the Christians there actually had worse practices as the pagans, wow. They had some serious problems in the church at Corinth. And yet now, when he's writing to them in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 here, he says that they excel in their faith. So what we see taking place over this amount of time is that the Corinthian church, the Christians there, have grown in their faith. They have matured in their faith. And what Paul is asking them to do next is to take another step in their discipleship of what it looks like to follow Jesus Christ more in their daily lives. And one of the ways that they can do that is by giving to the need of the Christians in Jerusalem. And I think it's this idea of having an opportunity to, to grow and to mature in our walk of life that we have here going on at the gate during this time of transition and during this vacancy. I'll be honest, I've had people at St. Paul ask me, so what's the gate going to do next? Are they going to call a pastor right now? And the way that I've been trying to explain this to people is using the analogy of what takes place when either you break up with someone or when you lose a loved one. When either of those takes place, you have to figure out what your new normal is. Before you do anything else, you have to figure out what the new normal is. You may not like the new normal, you may want to go back to the old way of life, but you have to figure out what life is like in that new way. And after that, or going through that process of figuring out what the new normal likes, that will lead and guide you as you make decisions later on in the future as well. Again, I think this is what's taking place here at the gate. Last week we figured out, and this week we continue to figure out that life does go on after Pastor Aaron. We may not like the way that it is, we may want to go back to the way that things were when he was here, but life does go on. We do continue to gather together as the body of Christ to be this, this presence here in our community, to be reminded of the love and grace that our God has for us, that he gives to us the body and blood of his son so that we may go back out into this world and represent him more fully in our lives. And we're gonna continue to do that. We're gonna continue to practice those core values that we have here at the gate of worshiping together, of connecting, and also of serving as well. And it's throughout this time of transition, throughout this vacancy, I think that we have the opportunity in order to consider what it may look like for us to be this community, the gate. 
Why is it that God has us here? What is it that our God is leading and guiding us to do here in our community? We have the opportunity to diagnose what the needs in our community are. And then as the body of Christ, we have the opportunity to be those who go out as the hands and the feet of Christ and who provide for that need. We're able to meet people where they are at and in so doing, be, become known in our community. Not that that's what we're going for, but so that people may know who we are and what we are all about here at the gate. But again, Paul, going back to our text, understands those whom he is writing to very well. He knows that if he finishes this exhortation to them uh, to give relief funds to uh, those in Jerusalem because that's what God expects of them, that it's not going to go over very well. And so we hear him say in verse eight then, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. What Paul is meaning here is that he doesn't want them to do this out of compulsion or coercion, but because this is the natural response that we are to have as the followers of Christ, as his disciples, that we are to have an outpouring of love and grace and generosity for those who are in need. And the question becomes, why? Why would that be our natural response? And it all flows out of what we hear then in verse 9, which leads us to our third and final uh, principle that we see Paul talking about here as why Christians would give. And it's because our giving flows out of what has been given to us by our Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul says in verse 9 of our text, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that by you his poverty might become rich. This is the final and most compelling reason that Paul lays out of why we as Christians would give. And it stems from all that our Lord Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. Our God didn't give to us what we rightly deserve based on our own words and actions. Our God wasn't fair towards us, but rather our God chose to give us a gift, an expensive, a generous, an extravagant, a prodigal gift. And that gift was his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life, who died a sacrificial death, and who triumphantly rose again on the, from the grave on Easter morning so that we would have what we do not deserve based on what we have said and done. But Jesus Christ was one who denied, who didn't just deny himself, but as Paul says in Philippians 2, completely emptied himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, all so that we could have what we cannot manufacture in this world or find anywhere else in this world, and that is the forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation. But maybe it's time for us to stop focusing on why we should give. And maybe it's time for us to focusing on who it is that our God is calling or leading us to give to. Maybe it's time for us to shift from focusing on the results of our giving to focusing on the actual people or the group of people that our God is calling us to give to. That we may become, that we might get to know better those, those neighbors that our God has placed around us so that we know more than their name and the car that they drive and when they go to and come back from work each day. 
so that we may get to know who they are, their story, and some of the needs that they have. And so that as our God has given to us, we might then give to them all that has been shown to us, the love and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. And now may the peace of God, which surpasses all human understanding, guard and keep our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus to life everlasting. Amen.